You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We're at the point of bringing to a conclusion our discussion of the account of the wedding feast at Cana. And I had finished off in the last session a consideration of the wedding as the symbol for the last days, for the day of the Lord. Actually, all this implies, you might say, the embarrassment that we experience in trying to speak of something that is so far out of our range of thinking and imagining. The greatness of it simply eludes us. So we do the best we can. In those times, they spoke of the high point of the social life as being a pallid reflection of what it would be this day of the Lord. Along those lines still, in talking about the overwhelming power and beauty of that day of the Lord, they spoke of wine, specifically an abundance of wine. Wine was the symbol of the good life, the high life. And here we're seeing the replacement, we've just seen in the account, replacement of water with wine that is better than the wine the guests had been drinking all along. That remark of the head waiter, you have kept the choice wine till now, could very well be a proclamation of the coming of the messianic days. And Mary's remark, they have no wine, could have been kind of a poignant reflection on the um, barrenness of religious life up until that point. But now Christ has come, and that's changed. But specifically, it's abundance of wine that characterizes the high point of the human story, namely the day of the Lord. It's actually an Old Testament symbol of the joy of the final days. It's worth tracking down a few of the Old Testament references to this. The first would be in Amos 9, 13 to 14. Behold, the days are coming, is the oracle of the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. And the mountains shall drip new wine, and all the hills shall melt, and I will restore the fortune of my people Israel. What a picture of abundance and success this brings to our attention. The plowman shall overtake the reaper. The harvest has been so superabundant that before it can be brought in, it's time to plant out the next year's crop. And then the treader of grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. So here they are treading out the grapes, making wine from the huge harvest that they've taken in. And before they can finish treading out the wine, why, uh, it's time to plant again, plant new vines. So it's just kind of a dazzling image of prosperity and good living. Now Hosea 14.7 And his fragrance like that of Lebanon, those who shall again dwell beneath his shadow shall raise grain. They shall blossom like a vine whose fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. 
In those times, apparently, the bouquet of Lebanese wine was something special. So that was really superb, exquisite. So that's going to be used as an image of the good times when the day of the Lord dawns. Not only an abundance of wine, but an abundance of superior wine. Then Jeremiah thirty-one twelve. They shall come and be jubilant on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant at the goodness of the Lord, at the grain, the wine, and the oil, at the young of the flock and the herd. They shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall languish no more. So we might say the agricultural flourish is used as an image of the good times that the day of the Lord will be. We have from an apocryphal book, let's say a book that is not part of the collection of inspired books, Second Barak 29.5, an expression of, you might say, the hyper-super abundance of wine that will characterize the messianic day. It reads as follows, The earth shall yield its fruit ten thousand-fold, So already you have a mind-boggling picture here that whereas there was one particular bush here originally, now there are 10,000, okay? And each vine shall have a thousand branches, each branch a thousand clusters, each cluster a thousand grapes, and each grape a hundred and twenty gallons of wine. So that's rather a huge supply. But the fact is that through these symbols, the miracle at Cana could very well have been understood by the disciples as a sign of messianic times. See, Because, you see, these texts I've just read from the Old Testament and from the apocryphal literature, this what had created the mentality of the people who were in attendance at this wedding feast And now to see this happen, this change of water into a huge supply of wine, could have recalled to their minds just these things that we've been reading about as earmarks of the Messianic period. Well, we'll set this aside then and go on to consider the very next account that we find in the order of the Gospel. Following this, is the account of the cleansing of the temple. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the Jewish Passover was approaching, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found the dealers in cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting at their tables. And he made a lash out of rope, and drove them all, sheep and cattle, out of the temple, and scattered the money changers' coins on the ground, and overturned their tables. And he said to the pigeon dealers, Take these things away, do not turn my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that the scriptures said, My zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews addressed him and said, What sign have you to show us for acting in this way? Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, 
and I will rebuild it in three days. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this sanctuary, and are you going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking of his body as the sanctuary. So afterward, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the passage of Scripture and what Jesus had said. All right. Well, the first thing we might address is that expression, Jesus, his mother, and his brothers went down to Capernaum. And now this is something that ought to be looked into, since Catholics have the belief in the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother, that she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Now, if Jesus had blood brothers, how could that be? And possibly one has to take into account the use that is made of that word brothers in Hebrew. And I don't think that what I'm about to say is particularly far-fetched, namely that the word brother was used to cover a broader extent of human relationships, male relationships, than is normal in our language. For us, to speak of one's brother means to speak of one's other male child, uh, the same father and mother. But the fact is that in other cultures, not just in the Hebrew, but elsewhere, people use the word more loosely. Identify someone as a brother who really is not from the same family, at least from the same family unit as I'm from, my father and mother. But still, this fellow is not another son of my father and mother, but I still refer to him as brother. We have an instance of that in the Old Testament, where at one point, Abram has to part company from Lot's group, some trouble among the servants of both these men, Lot's servants and Abraham's. So Abraham says to Lot, my brother, if you go south, I will go north. If you go east, I will go west. But refers to Lot as his brother. Down the line, we find out the actual relationship between Lot and Abram. And it's this, that Abram's sister was Lot's mother. In other words, Lot is really his nephew by our way of reckoning things. Yet he is referred to as his brother. But not just in Hebrew, elsewhere in other cultures of the world, in Africa, for example, there are places where this is customary, in China, for instance, to refer to a broader range of male relationships. So one's brother-in-law is called a brother, one's cousin referred to as brother. In certain places in the Far East, your brother is a person who comes from the same village that you do. That's all that would be understood if you were to introduce this individual as your brother. People would say, oh, then he's from the same town you're from. And if you actually mean to identify your actual physical other son of your father and mother, you'd have to put it in another way, because if you just said, this man is my brother, all the people would understand is he's from the same town you're from. So that then is the way we view the reference to brothers here, male relatives of Jesus, but not blood brothers. There is an interesting comment that one might bring to your attention. This is from 
the work of an Episcopal scholar by the name of Bernard in the International Critical Commentary. And Bernard says this, It is difficult to understand how the doctrine of the virginity of Mary could have grown up early in the second century if four of her acknowledged sons were prominent Christians and one of them Bishop of Jerusalem. And that's a very cogent observation. This devotion to Mary and her virginity starts up at a time when these so-called brothers of Jesus are still around. How could one then reconcile these two things, Mary as virgin and these other persons purporting to be her sons? They surely would have spoken out to say, this can't be, but yet that belief started at that early point and you know, has lasted up to the present. So, so much for the reference to the brothers of Jesus. Now the Jewish Passover was approaching and Jesus went up to the temple in Jerusalem. We note that this is the first of three Passovers mentioned in this gospel. These Passover references are used in an effort that people make to section off the time periods of the public life of Christ. But in any rate, we notice this is the occasion of Jesus' visit. It says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. An interesting thing to note is that normally this expression, to go up to Jerusalem, implied going up for religious reasons, going up in pilgrimage to Jerusalem, going up to pray at the temple. So that if anyone were going up to Jerusalem for other mundane reasons, they'd have to put it some other way because just saying you're going up to Jerusalem would be understood generally to mean that you're going up for religious purpose. Well, now what happens is that Jesus finds within the temple precincts all these people doing land office business. The temple was sectioned off somewhat in this wise. There was an outer court referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Well, anyone could enter that. And that, as a matter of fact, would be where this business was going forward. An inner court to which only Jews might enter. That was a little more solemn, a little more sacred in their estimation. All the way on into the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred spot in the whole complex. And this was the place where only the high priest might enter, and then only once a year on Yom Kippur. Well, all these sales were going on in the outer court. Originally, this business was being conducted on the slopes of the hill right outside the temple complex. But Caiaphas had allowed these people to come in and do business in this inner court. You might wonder why these particular merchants were there and what was the point of all this. Well, very obviously, it was to facilitate the purchase of a sacrificial victim that the person would then take in and have offered as a sacrifice in his name. So one would buy a lamb or sheep right there and bring it in and that would be the sacrifice. The requirement was that these animals had to have been born and bred right in Judea in that sort of more sacred part of the Holy Land so that if someone living north in Galilee actually raised sheep it wouldn't do for him to take one of those animals, bring that down, 
to Jerusalem and have that sacrifice. No, it had to be an animal born and bred in Judea. Hence the need then for merchants who would market these animals. So that would explain that. As far as the money changers, how they figure in all of this, very simply, in this, for this reason, they were present to change the normal currency, or at least the more nearly universally used currency in the Holy Land, would have been either Greek or Roman. But that was unacceptable. You see, one of the things people did upon coming down to the temple, especially when they came down for the pilgrimage, was to pay the temple tax that was levied on every family. Now, the normal money that one would use was either Roman denarii or Greek drachmas that you would use not for paying the temple tax, as I'll explain in a moment, but for the other purchases and expenses that one had in life. But this kind of money could not be used in paying the temple tax for the good reason that imprinted on each one of these coins was either the head of the emperor for the drachmas or the figure, the image of a famous philosopher, that would be the drachma. The denarii would have the head of an emperor on it. And you see, it was felt by the Jews at that time that this was a breach of the first commandment which asked that no graven image be made of any living thing. And then it goes on to say to worship it, but the Jews construed that very strictly and felt that it would be sacrilegious to bring a graven image into the temple. So money changers were there to take your Roman and Greek coins with their images and to give you back in return Tyrian coins from up in Lebanon that didn't have this engraving on it, this image on it, any image on it. And that would be acceptable for paying your tax. You see, from all I've said so far, the usefulness of this arrangement of these merchants available to the visitors to the temple for the best of reasons. Now, there was a strong sentiment among the people, and it it would have been the thinking of our Lord as well, that this had gone too far. It's true that this was very convenient for people to have these merchants right there at hand, but it was within the precincts of the temple, and that seemed out of order that that be so. And hence, our Lord takes the action that he does. Some people have noted that in driving these merchants out, in this account, Jesus seems to be rather harsh with respect to the dealers in cattle and sheep, but a little more lenient with those who were pigeon dealers. And they go on to construe that further in this way. That would be explained in this fashion. The pigeon dealers were the ones who accommodated the needs of the poor because the poor, unable to get enough money to purchase you know, a normal victim, a normal sacrifice, sheep or calf or a lamb, the best they could afford would be a few pennies for birds. And so the pigeon dealers were there for that to accommodate that need. And perhaps our Lord takes it easier on them for that reason, because they serve the poor. Now, we're told that Jesus bends down, makes a whip of cords to drive out these animals. One would think, why not have used a stick? Well, one reason is that there was a very strict law 
against introducing any weapon or anything that could serve as a weapon into the temple area. The population was so volatile, even at worship, that to prevent the shedding of blood, which would be sacrilegious within the temple, that regulation was enforced. So then Jesus takes some of the straw from the bedding of the animals and makes the whip out of that. The reference in the account is this, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Frequently throughout the Old Testament, the temple is referred to as God's house. Now, we have to think that what the Jews understood was this, that they did have a sense of God's omnipresence, that must be said. God is everywhere. Therefore, how can you speak of God in the confines of a particular building? That's a mystery. But the fact is that it was thought that one could experience God more formally, more forcefully, more significantly within the temple than one could experience him anywhere else. And that more or less was their thinking, and that's why then they spoke of the temple as God's house, not the house of God's people. And that explains the high reverence that these people had then for this building, because within these confines that God lived. Remember early on, I spoke about the special meaning that the word Jews has here. See, and in this passage in verse 18, it says, The Jews addressed him and said, What sign have you to show us for acting in this way? Well, here the Jews very obviously is a reference to the antagonists of Jesus, to the people who were opposing Jesus. It's not making any comment about an entire nation or an entire religion, but about those people who were challenging Jesus at this moment. Well, you'll remember at the very outset, I spoke of the special use that this author of the gospel makes of that word Jews. It identifies the enemies of Jesus, and we see a clear-cut example of that here. Now, what might be worth noting is that elsewhere where this account is to be found, for instance, in Mark, Mark 11.27, it sheds light on specifically who these opponents were. Then they went into Jerusalem again, and as Jesus was walking about in the temple, the high priests, scribes, and elders came up and said to him, What authority have you for doing as you do? Well, now John has, as asking that question, What authority have you for doing what you're doing? He assigns that to people he calls the Jews. So you see that in John's mind, Jews, the equation would be this, Jews equals high priests, scribes, and elders, namely the opponents, the avowed opponents of Jesus. Well, let's now look back over the account and see you know, what can be said broadly speaking about it all. First of all, this is a kind of a prophetic protest against the profanation of God's house. I call it prophetic because the prophets are notorious for the strictures they make about the behavior of the people with respect to the temple and with respect to God generally, how there is an inconsistency, that there isn't the spirit that should go with genuine prayer, so that they go up and very perfunctorily perform their sacrifices, 
but then go and don't act in a way that is accords with a person who is devoted to God and serious about doing God's bidding. And uh, this is of a piece with that. This protest that Jesus makes is uh, along those lines. This is God's house, and it is inappropriate to use it the way you people are using it. You'll recall that I spoke to you earlier about this replacement theme that you have in John's Gospel, that all throughout you have a Jewish institution, a Jewish religious institution, which is supplanted by something that Christ brings on. And this would be an example of that. Pretty much foreshadows the destruction of the temple. So the temple was the place where people could have experienced God close up, intimately. That's going to be replaced. And what we find throughout the New Testament is that the replacement of the temple is nothing less than the person of Jesus himself. There would have been a time when if you wanted to encounter God meaningfully and up close and powerfully would have been to go to the temple. There within the Holy of Holies there was a special presence of God. But now the time would come when the temple would be raised and it actually historically happened in the year 70 the Romans took care of that. So that the temple as a place for encountering God is supplanted, is superseded by nothing less than the person of Jesus himself. God is in Christ. Jesus is God. And now, if you want to make your approach to God, you don't go to the temple in Jerusalem, you make an approach to Christ. And there it is. But it lines up with the rest of what we've seen thus far as in John of a Jewish counterpart supplanted, replaced, substituted for by something more meaningful, more powerful that Christ brings on. Now, what's interesting here, and we have to give some time to this, the placement of this incident, curiously, it's the second thing we read about in the actual public life of Christ. The first thing we hear about is the miracle at Cana. And then cheek by jowl with that is this account of the cleansing of the temple. We note that in the other Gospels, this is placed differently. It's placed further on. For instance, if you were working out times, this incident is put at the beginning of Holy Week in Mark's account, for example. And that's probably where chronologically it should be placed because this would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Up until this point, the Jewish authorities resented what Christ was saying and doing but then this topped it all, taking the liberties that he did of going in and making these rearrangements in the temple. And that probably is what then determined them to do away with Jesus. And then the events of the Passion kick in and the crucifixion and so on. But here, in this gospel, it's only the second thing we read about in the public life of Christ. Now, why should the author of the gospel have put it in this place? And we think that we can guess that. It's this. What the author of the gospel is trying to do at this point in the gospel is to illustrate the various reactions to Jesus that people made. The first reaction that people had, or the reaction of some people to Jesus, was, 
totally positive that was the wedding feast at Cana. What was the upshot of it all? Jesus' glory was manifested and they believed in him. Full faith in Christ, total acceptance of Christ. That's the upshot of the Cana miracle. Now the next thing we read about is the purification of the temple. And what's the upshot of that? By what right have you done what you did? Total rejection. See, in the one instance, a full embrace of Christ after the miracle of Cana. In this next instance, an out-of-hand dismissal of Christ, a rejection of him. And now the next thing that we're going to look at will give us another reaction that people had to Christ, an in-between reaction. That's what we're going to see when we look at the account of Nicodemus's visit. Nicodemus was a fence-straddler at the beginning, in any case. You see, he comes to Jesus, but he comes at night. He's not ready to throw all caution to the wind and be seen going in to talk to the enemy, so to say. So he's not fully in Christ's corner, but yet he makes the effort to go and visit with him. So you have an in-between, a median. Here's then the way it lines up. Cana, full acceptance of Christ in faith. Cleansing of the temple, total rejection of Christ, no faith at all. Nicodemus's visit, half and half, trying to make up his mind. And so that's what you have illustrated here, just by the placement of these incidents. We're taught something by the evangelist. And now to go back and wind up our treatment of the cleansing of the temple by reading for you some Old Testament precedents to this. In the Old Testament, the prophets frequently cried out against the abuses in the temple. And again, the insincere way that some people were praying in those times. Let's look at some of these. First of all, we'll consider Jeremiah 7.11. Start above number 11, maybe at verse 9. Jeremiah is really on the rampage here and is exclaiming, What? Steal, murder, and commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to the Baal, that's an idol, and run after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say we are safe only to practice all these abominations? Has this house which bears my name become a robber's cave in your eyes? Lo, I see through it, says the Lord, for go now to my sanctuary that wasn't at Shiloh, where I formerly established my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. So this is talking about the impiety of these people who, you know, lived thoughtlessly and you might say desecrated the temple by living a very immoral, unacceptable existence and yet coming to the temple. That's desecrating the temple. Then Zechariah fourteen twenty one. All who sacrifice shall come and take of them to boil the flesh in them. And there shall no longer be a trader, a merchant, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. 
So that's what our Lord himself is quoting in response, saying, my house is a house of prayer, you have made it a den of thieves. It's against the background of this text, no longer shall there be a merchant or a trader in the house of the Lord on that day. Then Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send forth my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and suddenly to his temple shall come the Lord whom you are seeking. See, so people could have, seeing Jesus do what he did, see the fulfillment of what's here in Malachi. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and suddenly to his temple shall come the Lord whom you are seeking. Finally, I want to look at Isaiah 56, 7. I will bring them to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be welcome upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So there, a characterization of the temple itself is given as a revered, quiet, prayerful venue and not a place for doing business as usual. Among the Pharisees, there was a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish council. This man went to Jesus one night and said to him, Master, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can show the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, I tell you, Unless a man is born over again from above, he can never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb over again and be born? Jesus answered, I tell you, if a man does not owe his birth to water and spirit, he cannot get into the kingdom of God. Whatever owes its birth to the physical is physical, and whatever owes its birth to the spirit is spiritual. Do not wonder at my telling you that you must be born over again from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That is the way with everyone who owes his birth to the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can that be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet ignorant of this? I tell you, we know what we are talking about, and we have seen the things we testify to, yet you all reject our testimony. If you will not believe the earthly things that I have told you, how can you believe the heavenly things I have to tell you? Yet no one has gone up into heaven except the Son of Man, who has come down from heaven. Just as Moses in the desert lifted the serpent up in the air, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We'll bring this to a conclusion at this point and take up after this with an examination of this passage just read. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.